feature of all of these examples that he's going to give with regard to putting off the old and putting on the new is that they concern our relationships in the body. Now, that's why it's such a, a sad thing when people are homebound, when Christians are homebound, uh, when there are shut-ins, and, and when there are people uh, out of just a difficult providences, cannot be a part of a body. It's really a sad thing because holiness isn't some condition just seen among the monks, among those in isolation. It's lived out in relationships. I like to say it's, it's always a road game. Holiness is always a road game. Second, in each example we're going to see in, in this passage today and the one we look at next week, we're going to see a negative prohibition, a negative command, which is always balanced by a corresponding positive command. So there's the negative and then there's the positive. What do you think Paul's doing there? He's, the negative is... Here's what it means to put off the old man, the old self. And the positive, this is what it means to put on the new self as you renew the spirit of your minds. And then third, in each case, a theological reason is given or implied. Paul always gives us reasons for why we do what we do. One of the things we're doing right now as a family is we're reading through the Psalms. And, and th- throughout the Psalms, we... We see these commands to praise the Lord, to bless the Lord, to delight in the Lord, uh, to exalt in the Lord, uh, to pay homage to the Son, as we read this morning. We see these commands, and one of the things I've noted to the, to the family is this. Every time we're commanded to do these things in the Psalms, it's always grounded by something concerning the person of God, the promises of God, are the performances of God. The person of God, the promises of God, are the performances of God. And Paul is no exception to that. He gives theological reasons for every command. Now, that brings us to verse 25. In the first command, we could put it this way. Put off the former life of falsehood and put on the new life of truth. That's verse 25. Notice in verse 25, he says, therefore, okay, I've called you to put off the old self, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self. I'm going to get specific. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. That's the theological reason he gives. So therefore here, that word therefore signals that Paul is now going to give us a series of commands describing the type of behavior that results from the new self. And I love specific examples, and he gives them. In regeneration, the moment you are born again, you receive, we receive a new life principle. We have new desires by the Spirit. And, and they're internal in our hearts, in our spirit, in our soul. And that new self reveals itself negatively in self-denial, in crucifixion, in putting your death, 
putting to death the deeds done in the body. Killing sin before it kills you, as John Owen would say. And this new self reveals itself positively by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, making no provision for the flesh, Romans 13. And this new life, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, is revealed in every area of your life. There's no area that the new self sequesters off from the Lordship of God. It reveals itself in every area of life, and Paul's going to address all of those areas. He's going to address the different spheres of life. In other words, the new self brings a new way of life. Now, why do we need to be reminded of that? Because the me I see is the me I'll be. And you're not your old self. If you're in Christ, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, your identity is the new self. You're a saint. You are set apart. And so the verb here in verse 25, having put away. Scholars tell us that this functions like a command. You must put away specifically falsehood. Now I think that's interesting that the first command in this section is to put away falsehood. And he's writing to Christians. And, and to be honest with you, that, that's shocking to me at face value. I'm, I'm often shocked by what the scriptures say. And, and, and the reason I am is not because the, there's something wrong with the scriptures. There's something wrong with me. And so I need my sensibilities, okay, sanctified. And that's what the word does. The word renews my mind. I am shocked that the first thing he says here, right after telling us to put off the old self, is to put away falsehood. He's writing not to pagans. He's writing to the church. It reminds me of an oft-told story by J. Ligon Duncan. And he told this story, he would often tell this story, of, of a Presbyterian a professor and pastor who went to preach at a prominent Southern Baptist church. I don't know what church it was. But he, in the first sentence of his sermon, asked the question, how many of you are murderers? And, and no one raised their hand. And he said, then, how many of you uh, are, are thieves? No one raised their hand. And then he asked, how many of you are liars? And one vulnerable fellow in the back raised his hand. And the preacher said, there's at least one honest person in the room. I've always found that interesting. But it would seem at first glance that this command to put away falsehood would be unnecessary for Christians. And yet, it's not the only place Paul commands this. In Colossians, here's what he says in Colossians 3, do not lie to one another. Again, he's writing to Christians. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. In other words, that is representative of the old person in Adam. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. But having pastored 
Now for some time, I recognize why Paul comes out of the blocks dealing with falsehood first. It's sad, but it's true. One of the primary ways the enemy brings division in a church is by falsehood. And let me give you a really specific example. We could talk about lies, and of course we know lies are wrong, and, and cheating, and we, we could talk about that. Uh, there have been studies done that even in seminaries and colleges, there's an inordinate percentage of students who, who cheat, who lie in the classroom in order to make a better grade. We could talk about all of that, but I want to talk about something I think Paul may be getting at more specifically. Because remember, the context of this is keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I think one of the primary ways that falsehood, falsehood is, is seen in our church, uh, churches is by the, the, the constructing of false images and impressions about other brothers and sisters to fit the narrative we want to create about them. Because of our attitude towards them, we create a case against them. I've seen it here. For those of you who are visiting, uh, I'm sorry to, to reveal uh, dirty laundry at Fisherville. We're largely a growing and maturing body, but I have seen this here. Th those who study what is known as persuasion art, maybe you're familiar with that, speak of the need to perfect the enemy. Let me give you an example of that so I can be a little more concrete. We were taught that when I was a pharmaceutical salesman. Perfect the enemy. Now, what does that mean? Well, when I was selling Zyrtec, which is an antihistamine, my, comp my competitor was Claritin. And we were taught to perfect the enemy. My enemy was not Claritin salesman. I had a good relationship with them. My enemy was the drug Claritin. And so we would go into these doctor's offices, and I would perfect the enemy. I would focus on the, the weaknesses and the inadequacies and the insufficiencies of Claritin and Allegra so that the physician getting caught up into the narrative I've created would write prescriptions for Zyrtec. That's when Zyrtec was a prescription drug. Well, I've seen that done here, not with medicine, but with people. Where a person, a, a family member, a, a brother or sister, portrays another brother or sister who has irked them or hurt them, so negatively that no rational person can't help but oppose that person as well. It's nothing less than propaganda. Now, we, we turn on the news, we see propaganda all the time, and we are horrified by it, aren't we? It's, it's, it's moving our country to a progressivist position that none of us find palatable. It's propaganda. But we see it in the church as well, and it's devastating. I, I have seen brothers 
in this church turn on other brothers that they were close to because another brother, a third party, created a narrative about that brother that was believed because the one creating the narrative knew how to perfect the enemy. That's propaganda. Let me offer you an illustration because I do want to camp here as well. Uh, because I don't see it going on here right now, but it's something every church is subject to because I think it's the primary method of the evil one in a church. In the 1850s, there was a dominant artistic style called realism. Now, it, it was a movement that aimed to represent as closely as possible what the artist had seen. So he sees a, a picture and he seeks to represent that picture as closely as possible when he paints it. It's called realism. And I think that illustrates what Paul means when he says, speak truthfully to your neighbor. But there were other painters, like Claude Monet, uh, who innovated another method of art called impressionistic art. And, and so in impressionistic art, you take what the eyes have seen, and then you exaggerate it, and you ignore parts of it, and you ultimately distort the picture. And much falsehood in the church does that. A narrative is created about a person, and the one behind that narrative is painting that narrative like Claude Monet painted art. Impressionistic art. And let me offer you this. We're going to get to slander next week. Slander very well may be impressionistic art 100% of the time. And so when you hear someone slandering someone else, be aware that's impressionistic art. And I think that might be what Paul is primarily dealing with in the church because he recognizes how vital unity is for Christ's church. A, a, a church divided cannot stand. And, and, and a divided church bears false witness to an accomplishment of our Lord Jesus Christ who came to bring reconciliation. And the reason Paul says this new person in Jesus renounces falsehood is that, notice, he says we are members of one another. He always gives a theological reason for his commands. These aren't arbitrary commands. We are members of one another. So when you lie to someone else or create a, some kind of falsehood, you are literally, as a Christian, lying to yourself. Because that Christian to whom you are lying or creating a, a falsehood about another Christian is a member of the same body. Point he's making. So every Christian is connected to the head, and the head is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're all members of his body. And so when one person in the body lies to another person in the body, we're literally lying to our own body. 
It is self-deception. And it is used by the enemy, as we're going to see in just a moment. That brings us to the, the, the second part of this passage. And that is this, put off the former life. So again, the context is verse 22 and 23 and 24. Put off the old self, put off the former life of inordinate anger, and put on the new life of repentance. Look with me in verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil. Uh, these two verses contain four commands. So there's 39 commands in verses, or chapters 4 to 6, and four of them are found in these two verses. Be angry. Do not sin. Do not let the sin, uh, sun go down on your anger. And do not give opportunity to the devil. Now, be angry, but not sin. That, that is a direct quote from Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. If you consider the context of that psalm, the psalmist recognizes, and David, or Paul recognizes, that there's such thing as righteous anger. In fact, it's unrighteous sometimes not to be angry. There is such thing as righteous anger, and too few of us have enough of that. Indeed, in chapter 5, verse 6, we're reminded of the anger of God, which is always righteous anger. I, I, in fact, I've, I've said this before, the anger of God is the hope of the world. We, we sang about that this morning. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? Uh, they're, they're plotting in vain because God's anger is the hope of the world. Uh, that's why we as Christians don't really have a reason to fret. The Son of God's been exalted, and there's nothing that can de-exalt Him. Um, and, and God is angry over the same things that should make us angry. Confronted with deliberate evil, and we are seeing it, aren't we? from the way marriage is being reconstructed, the whole notion of choosing your gender, which is a direct assault on the creation order, abortion on demand at any term. In the, there is a righteous anger. We should be outraged at these things, not open-minded. We should be angry, not apathetic. If God hates wickedness, so should the people of God. And again, we're reading through the Psalms, and this week we read in Psalm 119, and in verse 53, now in, the, in this Psalm, you know Psalm 119, it, it is the greatest chapter in the Bible on the attributes of Scripture, the, the sufficiency of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, the necessity of Scripture, the authority of Scripture the perfection of Scripture. But in the midst of all of that, here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 53. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked. As he's reading his Bible, the, the righteous anger that should be true of every believer comes out in him. 
as he thinks about the lawless, as he thinks about wickedness that opposes God's law, God's word. So there's a righteous anger. He's commanded here to be angry. It's remarkable. And yet in our fallenness, we may process our righteous anger in unrighteous ways. You think that's possible? Until we're perfected, until that new self is completely conformed to Christ, yes, that's possible. And so Paul immediately qualifies this command, be angry with three negatives. Be angry, yes, but do not sin. We have to be sure that our anger is free of malice and pride and a vindictive spirit. That is something I am prone to. I want to cut off Malchus's ear with the sword and join my friend Peter. The second negative here is do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, what's he saying there? I, I, Paul is saying here that you need to be very careful about nursing anger. Nursing anger. You need to deal with it, or at least unrighteous expressions of that anger. You know, he's appealing, and you may not see this at, at just a cursory reading, but Paul, he is so steeped in the Old Testament. Many scholars believe that he had the entire, what we know as the Old Testament, memorized because of his position before he was converted to Christ as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was likely on the Sanhedrin. And so Paul likely had the entire Old Testament memorized. And here he's appealing to Deuteronomy 24, 13 to 15, and he's drawing out principles from that passage or that section of the law. And there a moneylender who took a poor person's cloak as a pledge was required to return that cloak before the sun went down so that that person would have cover when he slept. Also, the, in that passage, an employer who had servants who were poor and needy was required to pay their wages to them before the sun went down. And Paul is drawing application from that with regard to unrighteous expressions of anger. So, so why is Paul concerned about how and how long our anger is expressed? Well, that brings us to the third negative as we close out this portion of the passage, and that's verse 27. He says, and give no opportunity to the devil. If you allow anger to fester, that is unrighteous expressions of anger, you give opportunity. You give a place to the devil. That is horrific language. The devil is the chief of the demons. He exists. He's a, he's a, he's a real being. And he's the chief of the demons. And the devil and the demons are real. And, and let me give you their job description. 
They do not come except to kill, steal, and destroy. And they don't take sabbaticals. Every day and all day. And though they have been defeated in principle by the the finished work of Jesus, so how were they defeated? How was the devil's head crushed at the cross? Well, the, the ground of his dominion is our guilt. And, and Christ took the guilt. He, he took the guilt for everyone who would trust in him. And he was, he was crucified for our guilt. Our guilt was in, imputed to him. And though he was the righteous, spotless Lamb of God, he was treated as if he had committed every sin you and I would ever commit. It took an infinite being to take to absorb that kind of wrath. That's why he has to be more than a man. He has to be God himself. It took an infinite being to absorb that kind of wrath. And he took the guilt, and when he was raised, the verdict was reversed. We're no longer guilty. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so with the guilt taken away, the throne of the devil is absolutely destroyed. But in the mysterious providence of God, he is still allowed to to exercise tragic sway until Christ returns. And therefore, there will be levels of demonic attack. Ephesians 6, the whole letter ends with a treatise on spiritual warfare. Paul recognizes if you are indeed committed to walking worthy of the calling... If you are committed to putting off the old self, if you are indeed committed to putting on the new self, and as we're going to see in time, be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children, and and you're committed to all the areas that Paul addresses, including your marriage and your parenting and the workplace, there's going to be attacks. And we too far dismiss the present workings of the devil. We do that, or sometimes we put everything on him. The devil made me do it, as the theologian Flip Wilson once said. Paul knows something here that every Christian needs to remember. Believers are not immune to the devil. You can't be possessed by him. You have the Holy Spirit. You're a temple. The devil can't come into that temple but you are not immune to the oppression and the assaults and the warfare caused by this one who knows, Revelation 12, that his time is short. And he will quickly, immediately seize the opportunity of changing our anger, whether it's righteous anger or unrighteous anger, into a grievance. He'll he'll immediately change that anger into a grudge. Have you seen it here? Or am I the only one that's seen it? A grievance, a grudge, and an unwillingness to forgive. That's giving the place an opportunity for the devil. And, And that reminds us that in the Christian life, there's always a spiritual battle being fought. There's always a spirit. You wake up into a battle. So no place 
whatsoever must be given to him. And for the most part, I was reading a section in Herman Bovink, one of the great early 20th century theologians, in a book that, that Craig gave me uh, a couple of years ago, Reformed Ethics. And he says in that Reform Ethics, for the most part, Satan begins with the sin that's already within us. He doesn't have to start anew. He begins with the sin that's already in us. Bovink's example was Judas, who was already greedy when the devil came on him. It's horrifying to think about, isn't it? And Paul has established, you've been redeemed from that. In him, we have redemption. We are redeemed from the curse of the law, which means we're redeemed from sin, death, and the devil. We have been redeemed from that. Christ by his blood. And by this redemption, we are made fit for Christ to dwell in our hearts. That's why we're called the temple. God himself in Christ and through the Spirit dwells in our hearts. We're the temple. In other words, you are holy space. We are holy space. Consecrated. We are hallowed ground. It's not something we do. Lincoln was right. But he was wrong. It wasn't the blood of soldiers who do that. It is something that has been accomplished for us through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now Paul is saying, let us live as those who have been set apart. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. We know that the Word of God is the primary means we renew our minds. And as Paul says in Ephesians 4, 23 and 24, it is, being, it is through the renewing of the spirit of our minds that we put off the old self, the old person, the old man that's been crucified, and we put on the new self. As we continue in this letter. We pray that we as the people of God corporately and each one of us individually would indeed be renewed in our minds and taught more and more what it means to walk in light of the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And Father, if there are those here today, and I believe that there are, who've never trusted in Jesus, may they come to realize the old self dominates them. Indeed, they're under the condemnation of the old man, Adam. But Lord, that you in your mercy, your grace, and your wisdom has made provision for that condemnation in a way that would allow you to remain just and penalize the sin and yet a justifier in saving the sinner. Divine self-satisfaction by divine self-substitution in the Son of God. And we ask that today would be the day they would repent of their sins and trust in Christ, pay homage to the Son, as we sang this morning. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.